So as we're recording this, as we're in here doing our work, we got Dill in the kitchen chopping vegetables and mm-hmm. browning a turkey. That's that's what I'm thankful for. <laughs> and and you're going to be not, a beneficiary of that as well. It's not long now. <laughs> browning the turkey really is the game changer. I think turkey has the reputation of being dry at Thanksgiving, but mm-hmm. I, not not the turkeys I eat. Maybe y'all's turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> When'd you start that process? That that's been that's been a thing. You know, again, shout out to Dell. He knows what he's doing in mm. there with the turkey. All right. Um, but in addition to being thankful to him, I'm very thankful to the Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More on the Schubert Club here in a little bit. But, you know, again, speaking of of Turkey Day, I'm sure that you have all sorts of just warm memories from many uh, Turkey Days of of years past. Anything come to your mind immediately when you think of Thanksgiving memories? They were all pretty standard, um, Midwest, middle class sort of affairs. Um, they were non-problematic until the, my two older brothers started, uh, you know, the not everybody gets along, right? <laughs> so it started- Oh, you mean problematic am- among your siblings fighting or picking right. at each other? Yeah. I thought you were saying once the wine gets the flow and it gets a little problematic in there. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, I prefer Friendsgivings now. Yeah. So the most recent memory was the first big one at my house when you arrived, 2018. Yeah, yeah, was that, a good was, one. that was a fun one. And it was like a blizzard that yeah. came later <laughs> yeah. on um, that evening. Uh, you know, I don't have the uh, prototypical bad Thanksgiving memories like, oh, there was a fight or there was a political argument at the table or or whatever. Is Is that a part of your experience? We didn't really get down like that in my household coming up. Let me sum it up this way. My two older brothers' wives did not get along. Uh, and it's like I don't know thanks- where the snicker is coming. It's like I'm- at Thanksgiving, so-called Thanksgiving. I'll talk about that in a bit, but <laughs> it seems like there are so many opportunities for things to go awry because if they don't get along anyway okay so now something wrong with the gravy or now this is cold or what you know you didn't have any of my pie (laughs) right and now we're in a box and we're forced to look at each other so as we think about this season of gratitude this holiday that's supposed to be pointed at gratitude that is a very important emotion and you know I like to lead with compassion and and thanks and all of that stuff these days. But every now and again, especially if stuff is getting spicy at the Thanksgiving table, Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about the relish or whatever, (laughs) you know, sometimes you need to escape and get to one of those pieces of music where that that will help you uh, just live out (laughs) some of those memories. You can live vicariously through song. I'm going to talk about uh, a Nina Simone track that I've been listening to in the second movement. Um, But the run or up <laughs> this week was a tune that you said you had never heard before at least not a part Nina Simone performance that right. you were familiar with so right. let me let me play a little bit of this for the people who uh, other folks who may not know this track a classic here from Nina Simone I feel my eyes in the devil's workshop and evil doing your thrill and trouble and mischief is all You know done well And that you go to hell 
Don't dispose of your natural soul Cause you know done well That you'll go to hell That you'll go to hell Say hell where your natural soul burns Go to Hell, that comes from a, an album uh, called Silk and Soul. I actually have the vinyl in there. Really incredible album overall, but that's a track. I don't know if it should be considered a Nina Simone deep track. It's one that I've known for a while, but it's a good one. I was just sitting here thinking, I was, is this a Thanksgiving song and I missed it? <laughs> yes, because sometimes <laughs> you want to tell some of your family members that, you know, or mm. some of <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and I'm not projecting because I love my family. And again, there has never been Thanksgiving fights. But I, it was just interesting for me to think about, again, this season of gratitude. But sometimes, you know, it ain't all about gratitude. You're feeling something different on the inside. And tunes like that one, I think, are, are just really <laughs> interesting. I think... Uh, what I love most is that Nina Simone starts with that very religious foundation, talking about living holy and doing right. And if you don't do what the Lord says, you know, you'll go to hell. Well, mm -hmm. the point she's making is if wrong is wrong, then that must mean it's some other people that went to hell too. <laughs> and it's uh, an example of a track of hers that she would improvise live and put in different names or different situations and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, how does this uh, fit into your continued uh, idea and understanding of who Nina Simone was as an artist? I remember I played that clip for you where she was eating chicken and she said she would have been a killer if she, mm -hmm. she could have done it and how that gave mm -hmm. you a different view. Do tunes like Go to Hell give you a different view of Nina? Oh, well, well not now. I mean, I, I, that doesn't seem out of character at all. It's just a track that I'm not as familiar with. Or maybe, with, maybe but, does it uh, contribute uh, to your renewed sort of perspective on who she was? Well, sure. Because when I, when I first discovered her, I didn't have any you know, any knowledge of her activism or her history at all. It's it, her music showed up on a soundtrack to a movie that I liked. And so I started listening that way. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I found out about what she was really like. Just as a, a reminder or a refresher, when you think about the Nina Simone that you knew before, mm -hmm. What are you thinking about? What type of woman or what type of artist were you led she, to understand this this person was? Yeah, she struck me as someone very demure. Mm. You know, um, um, uh, sweet and maybe uh, bashful. Yeah. So if we just take the story of Nina Simone as an example of the way that our conceptions of things, what's put in front of us, what we're taught about people or situations, how that can be very different from reality. Of course, I can't remember. I can't help but to think about the things that we were taught about the so-called Indians and pilgrims. It's even the language that was used that was taught to us as kindergartners and first graders is just so incredibly ridiculous. You know, when I was in first and second, I, I can remember as late as third grade for me. You know, uh, making those. Uh, uh, not paper mache, but the construction paper, pilgrim hats and the construction paper, little feather hats or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. If that I was, we if that. that was how I was going to say, if that was happening for me, 1995, 1996, surely back in the seventies, I'm sure <laughs> that I, just straight up. <laughs> I'm sure that I've redacted most of that out of my memory. I'm positive. We're going to get into a little bit of this, uh, in the, in the trilogy in the fourth movement today, but 
how do you just square how do you square up with your memories of what you were taught as a child, even all the way in school. We're not talking about what our families told us, what our public education taught us regarding this bit of history about indigenous people. How do you um, how do you apply that more broadly? For for me, it, it makes me question everything that well, my sure. first and second and third grade teacher was telling me. Sure, yeah, it does. And since I don't have children, I'm not faced with it. I haven't, you know, I've already dealt with it. <laughs> so can you imagine having children and they come and, home in a paper mache headdress right, I'm going up to the school damn I'm going up to the school <laughs> and say um, <laughs> right and do you know what happened when the first snow fell <laughs> <laughs> when it got cold yeah so let's apply that even you know all the way over to the arts and you know of course we aren't learning about you know Brahms and all those folks necessarily as kindergartners and first graders but I think there is also a sort of similar arc when we talk about that phrase classical music even decolonizing classical music I, I, I can't help but to identify a, a pattern there right I get what you're saying but what is the answer are, you, are we talking about introducing students slowly like do they get a piece of it in third grade and they build on that in the fourth or what um, we have no idea if the student is going to stay in that school to be able to follow a uh, a serialized right. version of right. history. So at what point do you lay it out? I mean, what is so and, and I'm I'm jumping all over the place, but I remember back in season one, uh the so-called Thanksgiving episode featured George Mauer. Shout right. out George Mauer. Right. He was talking about time that he spent uh, he had the honor of spending time on a uh, on a reservation and uh teaching music and learning music and 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 X, Y, and Z. Um a few months back, um, we, we had him over, we had uh, lunch, and he was talking about one of the presentations that he does about uh, school children in Vietnam having to learn that when you're digging or when you're walking, you have to be careful because there are leftover mortars and right. shells and things from the Vietnam War. So he's he's trying to, uh, you know, the best way he can uh, tell this story to a group of school children here because he was over on his bike. You know, he has the series Tales from a, a, a Bicycle Seat. Mm -hmm. And he, he's telling the story about riding his bike through Vietnam and, and meeting people and learning about, you know, this aspect of education. And as he's trying to explain uh, talk about this story to kids here in the United States, the teachers are like, oh, well, that's a little heavy. Maybe we should mm -hmm. switch to another topic. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how uh, you know, some children in some cultures have to deal with the realities of certain things. And here in the United States, we try to shield our, our young people from not just horror stories for the sake of scaring children, but the truth, the the truth of this country and the, and the history of everything that's gone by. Mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe my perspective or the way that I would approach it would be a little different if I had children or if I were a kindergarten teacher, but you talk about a serialized way of teaching this yeah, history. Yeah, I don't know what the answer I don't, is. I don't, I don't know if just teaching the truth is so bad. And if the history of the United States is a little heavy for a kindergartner or a first grader, maybe it we should wait and not pretend that something else happened, that there was some friendly feast where everybody got along and everyone lived happily ever after. You're just lying mm -hmm. at that point. So, you know, you might as well tell them any other uh, uh, fairy tale or whatever, one that's not going to paint history in a in an incorrect way. Right. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I would encourage people to read A People's History of the United States, 
which I'm sure that some folks listening right now are going to say, oh, well, that hatchet job. Sure. But no, no, it's, um, I think it's an important, different perspective of our early days. Yeah. Definitely, for yeah. sure. Well, you know, to loop this back to that uh, Nina Simone track that oh, yeah. I've been spending some time with, again, she's talking about, well, if these are the rules, if you do X, Y, and Z and you go to hell, that must mean such and such with the hell. That must mean such and such with the hell. So if I'm applying this to Thanksgiving, as we call it, I guess that means the pilgrims went to hell, huh? Mm. I guess that means the fur trappers that helped codify the so-called state of Minnesota, they must be in hell right now, huh? You know, in those early days of the so-called United States, there were some composers that came over here. I'm thinking about, uh, man, I'm forgetting their names, but there's a piano concerto composer that I'm uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, we even have uh, folks like Amy Beach and all of these, you know, early Arthur Foote, you know, all of these early American composers. If they were a part of of the uh, the genocide of indigenous people, that mm. must mean they in hell too, huh? They, I mean, look, that's... That's <laughs> according to that. Anyway, this is called Triloquy. This is Opus 175. <laughs> Happy halfway so called Thanksgiving. Yeah, halfway point in uh, season four. Let's go ahead and, and jump in here. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 175. Thank you, everyone, for joining us yet again for another opus of this podcast. It was Edward McDowell uh, as, as the composer that I was thinking about. You know, he must have gone to hell. Anyway, mm. as Nina Simone said, <laughs> thank you for tuning in to returning listeners. Uh, uh, thank you. We could not do this without you. Your support week after week is so vital, and we uh, appreciate the continued support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase and the idea of classical music and applies it to pieces of music, to conversation, to stories, and everything in between that hasn't always been approximated to that phrase, but things that we put next to that phrase and apply to that idea in an effort to decolonize classical music. Decolonize is definitely the word of the week. We're going to talk a little bit about that as it <laughs> applies to another artist and her views. Anyway, mm -hmm. for more information on the Triloquy podcast, uh, to learn uh, more about the history, to check out past opuses and to donate, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast, comes from Schubert Club. They have some really incredible things happening in the month of December. We can't fight the holiday season anymore after so-called Thanksgiving. When Santa Claus shows up at the end of that Macy's Day parade, that means we're here. That's it. So, so that's where all the content and all the uh, holiday concerts are coming in. And Schubert Club is, um, is doing their part uh, to bring in the cheer and the joy of the season. Coming up on December 15th, they have a free courtroom concert titled Songs of the Season, Carols by Minnesota Composers. The annual Songs of the Season program features original winter songs and carols by Minnesota composers and songwriters. You can learn more about that at schubert.org, among their uh, many other incredible 
bits of uh, programming uh, and content they have planned for uh, December. So happy to uh, have them on the team. And thank you once again for your support to everyone over at Schubert Club. In the third movement today, I'm featuring my conversation with maestro David Geyer, Delta David Geyer, and uh, uh, indigenous flute player Brian Akipa. They're going to uh, talk about the Lakota Music Project that the South Dakota Symphony has been uh, taking on cool. and the new recording that has come from. And I'm very, very honored uh, to bring them in uh, to this opus of Triloquy. As I've already mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about Nina Simone in the second uh, movement of this opus. Who are you bringing into the second movement this week? Going to... Uh Play some music in memory of the late Ned Roram, who died back on the 18th. So that would have been Friday night? No, Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that in the second movement. You know, I'll, I'll give uh, an annual Thanksgiving address in the, <laughs> in the final <laughs> the movement. The long awaited. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little about that. But uh, Boy, somebody put a nickel in you, all right. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> you're, you're, okay. Oh, you're wound so, up. Oh, so, so now it's time for us to be done. Okay, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay anyway, here's movement one. So I would say every other week or so, something happens in so-called classical news that everybody wants us to talk about everybody here tags on Triloquy. In yep. And this week, we have one of them. You were even prepared to uh, bring it in. How about you uh, lead us off this one? What, what accidental do you want to give uh, this, this This week? is a double sharp. Oh, a this... double sharp. Okay, I'll give you two. What, you don't think so? Give it to us. Reading from thefader.com. Report, Esperanza Spalding to leave Harvard teaching position. Okay, so why? Why, why would she ever Well, do let's that? go in here. The Grammy-winning artist announced her departure last week in an email to her music department affiliates, citing the administration's disapproval of her proposed, quote, decolonial education Okay, program. wait a minute. What type of education? Decolonial oh, education okay. so program. Okay, so it's not just me out here talking about that. Okay, just wanted to make sure I heard you right. Decolonial education <laughs> program. Uh, Esperanza Paul Spaulding has announced that she is leaving her part-time trading post teaching post at Harvard University's music department, the Harvard Crimson and Harvard Magazine report. We should note at this point that both Harvard Magazine and Harvard Crimson offer a their offer their take on this story. It is different than the fader.com. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Right. So uh, basically she has said that she has spent uh, many months going to the administration regarding a decolonial education initiative that she had, uh, had proposed, but that her vision for the program was, quote, not yet aligned with mm -hmm. Harvard's priorities. So something that I have realized is that we talk about decolonizing classical music so much that, you know, we take for granted, at least maybe I have taken for granted the fact that the concept of mental or cultural colonization isn't as well understood you know, as we may think, right. I, I think everyone understands what a colony is physically going somewhere and geographically naming something as something else. But if you had to try to um, explain the concept of cultural or mental, even emotional uh, colonization or decolonization to someone, how would you approach that conversation? Wow. <laughs> uh, what? How many floors on the elevator do we have again? <laughs> you have all the time you need. <laughs> Just trying to think about what uh, a uh, what a, a people's culture is like without the interference of something uh, or someone from the outside. Right, right. So 
if we talk about this from the uh, perspective of the arts, you know, what Esperanza Spalding was, you know, uh, proposing at Harvard, what can you imagine was the course of conversation when we talk about decolonizing a music curriculum? What are some of the things that you can imagine she must have been talking about or proposing? Well, probably talking about uh, courses that would highlight and study uh, the music of black composers, probably indigenous, um, yeah, um, marginalized groups, giving space to marginalized groups. Right? Yeah. And we can think about this, you know, conceptually or, oh, it's politically correct or X, Y, and Z, but I virtue signaling. But, but, but I, virtue signaling. But I think Esperanza makes points, you know, uh, in her email and her resignation email that I think we really need to pay attention and pay attention to and lean into. Uh, I'm reading here. Um, it says here from the article uh, elsewhere in her proposal, Spalding reportedly wrote that Harvard is quote, inextricably linked to black and native subjugation. Mm. So that's not just a sort of conceptual thing from her perspective, this type of Eurocentric, music education, this Eurocentric view of things subjugates people of color, subjugates mm. black mm. and native people. Is she going too far? Is is she is she stretching? How how do you approach <laughs> explaining that particular piece to someone or affirming it, you know, actual subjugation of people? How do I explain that? Or how do you how do you receive that? How do you think about that? How do you apply that? Well I think it's a better definition than what I gave. But um, that's one of the things that starts off on a people's history of the United States mm. is the subjugation of a people once English ships have landed on their shores. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, 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 I really think that she is in one of the, the best positions to be saying these things because at some point, institutions or people are going to have to be hit between the eyes before they get it. Mm-hmm. And what she did in this email and, and is shared in this interview was hit Harvard administration between the eyes with her thoughts. You, <clears throat> you can't say that you want to be diverse and inclusive without backing that up with the steps that need to be taken. So it seems like institutions like Harvard, and we could even back up specifically from this story and talk about like um, the Met Opera or the New York Philharmonic. I'm not saying things to pick on them, but I'm just thinking about hallowed institutions. How much attention do they need to pay to things like equity when at the end of the day is always going to be someone running up to those gates, banging and doing their best to get in mm -hmm. as, a, as a, a faculty, as a student, as a staff, whatever. It seems like that plays a role in an institution's uh, willingness or lack thereof to really grasp on to some of these things if it's never going to actually um, impact their reputation broadly or their bottom line or whatever. It seems like that's an aspect of it too. Sure, I think, but but she has such a platform though. Yeah, and of I'm, course. I'm sure that this is going, and in her words, how this is going to spread through the music community pretty quickly. Yeah. Marin Alsup did the same thing after 14 years at the Baltimore Symphony. I have spoken to close friends of mine when they left their jobs saying they didn't let me do what I was hired on to do. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I think that she's in a, in a better position than most people to say, to be frank and say these things because uh, she can leave Harvard and go out on the road and be fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's another quote uh, from here that, that you actually highlighted. I'll read here. Um, uh, she says, I am no longer willing to endorse a cultural norm whereby artists and artist educators passively participate in and benefit from institutions born and bolstered through the justification and or ongoing practice of exploiting and destroying black and native life. Mm-hmm. Say more. Why was that something that caught your attention? She pulled no punches in it. Mm. She said, I'm trying to (laughs) decolonize this music. Mm -hmm. You have a history of it, and you're not letting me do. So So I'm going to take me and my fame and all of my influence elsewhere. (laughs) And the article also points out that isn't she she starting some sort of a school or foundation uh, to address these things on her own? She started a GoFundMe page and had over $350,000 in her effort to build the BIPOC Artist Sanctuary in the city's St. John's neighborhood. What would that be like? Decolonized, (laughs) if anything. (laughs) So let me ask you this then, because we can, you know, we can center this around Esperanza. I'm also thinking about all of the faculty, maybe even the black and brown uh, faculty at Harvard who don't have the fame and platform that she has Mm -hmm. and they got to stay there Mm -hmm. or do they? You know, what from your perspective, what does that conversation look like? Because again, in that quote that it, I just read, she said, I'm no longer willing to endorse a cultural norm. You know, so mm-hmm. is sticking around there is not quitting your job, at least in this case, an endorsement of this exploitation and destruction of black and native life, as she says. An endorsement if if because another the, because if another black artist if another black artist stays or at or, Harvard or a white one or anybody she's saying that she could not be there anymore because she could not endorse a cultural norm so that must mean the faculty members that are still there are, are doing, doing that it. right so basically it calls out everybody in the department too mm-hmm. so what so what do you do when you're not Esperanza Spalding and you're working in the department and now you're and now you you know now you're in trouble yeah. <laughs> because you're yeah. endorsing something. Uh, I don't know. I I was thinking about this just a few days ago about um, you know what do the Amazon drivers do when <laughs> Bezos sends somebody up into space? Yeah. Um, what do Tesla drivers do? You, if you're driving a Tesla, are you going to sell it now because of <laughs> everything yeah. Elon? I don't know. I I and I I don't want to speak for them. Well, I, I don't have any high ground. Well, 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 Harvard did. Well, but before I get into that, I think, you know, at this point, we're talking about privilege and, you know, responsibility. Not everyone got it mm-hmm. like that. Not mm-hmm. everyone can stick their neck out like that because they have children to, you know, feed and, and, and folks to care for and all these sorts of things. So I do think it's important to at least draw that line, at least in in my sake. You know, I think there are areas in which even I, at this point of my career, can say or do more than, you know, some of our friends and colleagues who, again, have children or have other responsibilities. There are other things to think about. So I will name that, but it's hard not to point out the sticky situation that it puts, you know, folks in 
for that level of of call out and, and yeah. you here working for this yeah. institution. Uh, but but uh, what I was going to say is that we did hear from Harvard in this article. It says here in statements to the Crimson and Harvard Magazine, Harvard University Arts and Humanities Dean Robin Kelsey expressed his respect for Spalding, but did not offer specific information on the circumstance. He said, having Esperanza Spalding at Harvard these past five years has been fantastic. My admiration for her work is immense. She is a beacon and a turbulent world. They sure know how to talk nice about you when you're walking out the door, huh? I wonder if the conversations were that polite they and did, that open. They did not address her issue with her departure mm-hmm. at all. It's and and of course, you know, in, in the next breath, the only thing that that response was missing was, and this had nothing to do with race. Anyway, anyway, um, anything else on? I, I think, you know, all all in all, for me, it's encouraging to see this because having a position at any hallowed institution especially one like Harvard. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be involved with classical music or anything to know that going to Harvard or teaching at Harvard is a big deal, at least when it comes to uh, to certain people in, in certain communities. So for her to walk away from something like that, part-time or not, because I think that's a little bit of shade for you know all of these articles to be you know, leaning on the fact that this was part time. Okay, so what? She was still there. You know, that's more time than a lot of these other folks who trying to teach there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for her to walk away from from something like that, I think is is just you know giving hope to so many other activists and so many other people who aren't even activists but just interested in a in a decolonial or a truthful look at history, even music history. For me, it's very exciting, uh, and it and it inspires me to keep moving. Having the name Harvard stamped on your resume or on your byline or or whatever on on your name tag at a conference wasn't enough for her to go along with the nonsense. And I love it. I, I would I would love to see more of that. Esperanza is the sort of person that's going to do well do well wherever she is. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that this BIPOC artist sanctuary that she wants to create will be a success. And then every organization, every school that has passed on her up to this point is going to be two, three years behind the curve. Yes. Behind and, where they should have been. And I know that, you know, she will always be rooting for the black folks because, you know, I, I know I've told this story on Triloquy before, but I played a Wayne Shorter Pops with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra years ago and uh, Esperanza Spaulding was featured and uh, it was only one performance and no comp tickets for musicians. I mean, that was mm. not even standing room. Mm. But uh, after the end of the show, uh, she turned around uh, to look at the orchestra, pointed at me. Probably, I wasn't the only black person on stage, but it was probably two of us, maybe three of us, pointed at me, raised her black power fist, mm. and walked off the stage. And I felt so seen. That's going to be <laughs> just one of my performance memories of all time. Anyway, That's good. shout out to Esperanza Spalding. Thoughts and prayers to everyone at Harvard and to the faculty members that are sticking around and perpetuating violence and subjugation of black and indigenous communities. Well, Freshen up the resume because maybe there's somewhere better for you to be spending your time and your efforts than at an institution that will not even hear or consider that will let go a a person like Esperanza Spaulding for the sake of tradition. Could you imagine 
in any any institution. Let's say Esperanza Spalding for some reason got a what uh, was doing voicing or something at NPR. Should they not be doing everything they can to hold on to her? It just seems like an institution like Harvard would be bending over backwards to keep her there. So it's like they don't even see the value of having her on faculty. What it means for student recruitment to have Esperanza Spalding on your docket, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's upsetting on many levels, at mm-hmm. least for me. Anyway, we're going to get out of this. Um, so wouldn't you get that a sharp? Oh I, yeah, I would. I would certainly give Esperanza a sharp. Okay, yeah. she, just she making deserves, sure we're on the same page. She deserves page all the sharps. Yes. yes, absolutely. All right, well, we're gonna uh, go on to our next accidental with a composition by Esperanza Spalding called "Black Gold." Not only do we hear her beautiful bass playing, we hear some of her beautiful voice. Here's a little bit of this to get us to our next accidental. You can't say that I knew a whole bunch about Esperanza Spalding before having the pleasure of performing with her though. I mean, that was back in, I don't know, 2013, 2014, but you know, I, I just didn't know much. I, I guess I had my head so deep in, in uh, Brahms and whatever they were teaching me mm. <laughs> at conservatory. I did, just didn't make it there. D- d- was Esperanza Spalding in your radar of, of awareness? Oh, she's so good. I saw her play at O'Shaughnessy uh, theater back in, 2014 maybe mm-hmm. well wonderful show yeah yes hypnotizing and, and uh you know o'shaughnessy again and we're talking about indigenous people and, and things being named i'm sure land acknowledgements are happening there now i would imagine that's not the sort of thing that happened at the I show or maybe it did don't i don't know. remember um anyways it's just interesting to to draw those connections and how once upon a time the name of that venue just would have been the name of that venue but you know i'm i'm hearing that indigenous name and in, in the name of that venue, in, in, you know, getting off track there. But yeah, shout out to Esperanza Spalding. You know, I'm 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 also just compelled um, to shout her out as a fellow Buddha, someone who chants Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. So you know, she she has a, a community of support around her uh, when it comes to musicians and uh, even broader. So. We're going to see. I wonder who they'll... Can you imagine um, putting in a resume or being a part of the search committee for her replacement? I mean, (laughs) there's not even... Why would you apply for that job? You know, you you see what you're walking into, right. unless you know a colonial way of thinking and doing is no problem for you. Then go ahead and 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 go right toward it. But of course, they'll make some adjustments now, right? Maybe that is the hoped for uh, 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 impact that we should see. If anything, Esperanza is going to be fine, and maybe somewhere in that curriculum up there, something is shifting. Mm. Maybe maybe that's the best case scenario at this point. What do you think? Maybe. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. But what, but I know, say something like what what is a positive that could happen from this? Again, it's not like she's out on the street. She's she's going to be fine. She has this foundation. How does Harvard? If you are Harvard, how do you move forward from this? Just pretend it never happened, or do something different? I would think that they would take that shot between the eyes that I talked about and use that going forward so that maybe they can, you know, and I, I don't know what it's like up there. I've never been to Harvard. Me neither. So, and, and nor Yale. I don't know <laughs> nothing about either one. Yeah. <laughs> so all I'm saying is, is that the next person in has big shoes to fill, obviously, and it'll probably be a white person. Well, I hope it's a white person who's ready to roll up the sleeves and, and make some changes because she's made the point and she's made the so-called sacrifice, even though, you know, we can say that, oh, she'll be fine. That's, you know, she, she now she has some other work to do. Now, now she can't do the job that, you know, she had planned on doing or, you know, she has to shift herself. So I think, you know, we, we shouldn't dismiss it as all oh, she should be fine. Not that she's not that she's going to be in some sort of trouble or financial or otherwise. But that now she has to, you know, shift things along in her life. There's no telling about uh, the relationships that she cultivated while at Harvard. Maybe she has to move or switch households or something at this point just for geographic reasons. So there there is legwork that she has to do, you know, and, and uh, affirming her values and, and standing um, in, in her truth in this way. So I don't know, it, it should definitely be honored. And, and I'm saying that for myself, you know, because it's easy for me to also say, oh, she'll be fine. But there, there is work and sacrifice that has happened on her part for the sake of this. That's true, but it's Harvard that's going to miss out. Right. No, I agree. I, I 100% agree. All right. Well, speaking of things colonial... What? <laughs> I'm reading from Classic FM. It says, uh, headline, first trailer released for Chevalier, biopic about 18th century composer Joseph Bologna. Had, have you happened to see this or, or any trailer about the film mm -hmm. just yet? A couple times. What, do you, what, what were your uh, knee-jerk reactions? We tell the story, at least those of us in uh, broadcast, about Joseph Bologna, Chevalier Saint-Georges, all the time, seeing... All of those stories, radio breaks, Wikipedia articles that we've read, seeing that realized on film. How did you feel? What, what were your thoughts? At first, I was like, don't show me a bunch of tropes. <laughs> you know, don't show me yep. a bunch of, you know, it could be The Musketeer. It could be mm -hmm. whatever swashbuckling film, you know, and, and the twist is that it's a black man mm -hmm. that is heading things up. Um for I was. Oh, go ahead. I was very. I was very glad to see that there was a focus uh, being pulled towards his mother. So mm. perhaps we're going to get some of that story, which I have not. I'm not very familiar about. Yeah. What happened to his mother after? After he got famous, I don't know. So okay. So like. so so for folks who don't know the backstory, when you talk about the significance of his mother, why why is that significant? Okay. Yeah. So he was born uh, of a French plantation owner or landowner in Guadalupe. And the story that we have is the mother was an enslaved woman that, that worked there. So that must and mean they weren't in love. That must mean he raped her. 
Now I'm okay. That's what I'm now, saying. I'm, I don't know. I'm going off of the history of slavery in the United States, so I'm not trying to say nothing about the man's mother. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that must be what we're talking about based on the rest of history. So I think that's going to be an important piece. But then, you know, like when I said, don't show me the tropes. Obviously, it's a, a little black boy in Europe, and he's being stared at. He's being othered. All these sorts of things. And he rises to the level of Chevalier. Um, uh, he's a fantastic store- swordsman that uh, had uh, 500 men in his command or something mm-hmm. like that. And on top of it, just happened to be a, also a kick-ass uh, violinist and composer. Yeah, uh, was uh, let the, the story I always used to tell was let the first all-black regiment during the French Revolution. So, you know, just so, someone who is a very significant historical figure in general, you know, much less just in, in music. But when we talk about, uh, you know, the tropes and how he was stared at, you know, shout out to Angel Refuse, uh, a member of the Trilco family and a specialist on uh, the Chevalier. I need to call him and see what he thinks about uh, th- this movie. But one of the points that he always makes is that we think of the Chevalier as someone whose so-called excellence won him uh, uh, entry into high society in France. But they were, you know, races against him just like anybody else was in, mm-hmm. in that uh, time in history in any part of the world. The anti-blackness was very real. And I think as we think about this figure uh, uh, strictly from the classical music standpoint, again, when we're doing the radio breaks or telling the story about this person's music, we tend to forget about the fact that he was a black man living in a white society and that was not lost on any party involved. That's another thing about the trailer that I thought was important that that, that I've never really dove into which was when they started uh, ribbing him about you're a you, you're a circus act. You are you're an attraction, mm. a curiosity. See, this movie's gonna be triggering for me. I don't know. I need to see it at home. <laughs> mm. But you know, I put this on Twitter. Uh, I posted this on Twitter the first time I saw the uh, the trailer, maybe a couple weeks ago. And it's an honest question for me. I'm not trying to just say something. What am I supposed to be celebrating? From this film, what is the the pull for me? I understand that there are a lot of people who have never heard about Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint Georges. So, is that what? And again, real question: Is that what I should be centering when I think about this film? Do I need to not take for granted that there are some people who have never heard of this person, and maybe this film will give them a uh, a broader view of the diaspora, black history from that global perspective. Is that really what, is that what I need to be thinking about? Do you think that Amadeus gave people a better appreciation for what Wolfgang went through growing up in his career? I've only seen the film once, but my, my answer is no. So it must have just <laughs> been so stunning of a revelation for you. I suppose so. But again, I had heard of Mozart. Everyone has heard of Mozart. I'm guessing there are people who have never heard the name right. Joseph Bologna, and, Right, and they base that in, they, they, they say that in big, bold they never before right. before told story, and that kind of ticked me the, off, the too. Real, the real story, right, or the, the based on a true story, whatever it is. Um, you know how we talk about a lot of music, a lot of programs, and a lot of films are the 101 of inclusivity, inclusivity and equity and all that sort of thing? Yeah. I would say this is like 110. Okay. This is your next step up. All right. I'm not going to have a complete attitude about the film because... Uh, I understand some people need to learn this history. I think 
what I'm wary of is the respectability, the so-called excellence, all of those colonial tropes that were once used to measure Black greatness will be applied here, or at least could be applied here. I just don't want us to take a step backwards and consider this person, this historical figure, excellent because he managed to infiltrate whiteness and white society. That's that's my worry. I don't want us to slip back into those sorts of definitions of, of greatness because as Esperanza Spalding <laughs> would, would preach, I'm sure, there's been uh, uh, too much centering of, of the, the Eurocentric culture and history, not only in curriculum and what we've been taught, but how we define excellence and greatness and success and all of those things. And I fear the back steps you know, in that progression uh, that can be taken with a film like this. Maybe I need to give audiences more credit, but I definitely see that as a danger. We have talked before about if you're uh, walking by somebody's window and they're listening to a piece of Joseph Bologna's music and you can hear it coming out the window, right. would the average person go, oh, that's music by a black classical composer? Right, and I think there's something to that because we... We just don't, even if the music, and he's not the only one, of course. We can talk about uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor and, and, and all these other folks. Uh, but there's still the assumption of whiteness because of culture and because of X, Y, and Z. So anyway, I just see folks who, and, and maybe this is me, you know, uh, wearing my britches a little bit too high or something. But I just think about all of the folks again who have never heard of this person who aren't who don't even have anything to do with classical music and will associate his proximity to whiteness to greatness or to success right. and I, I, that just makes me itch I, I I don't I don't like that can we address the the hairstyles <laughs> the cornrows specifically <laughs> now I'm I'm approaching this with respect here we go how how far back in history do braids go? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure braided hair is as old as the diaspora, you know, all the way back to the motherland. At the Who in France at that time <laughs> would be able to get a line that straight? I think what we're talking about here is a contemporary stylization of blackness that they're just trying to apply to this film. Because, How do you feel Because about white that? people and black people alike wore the wigs back then. A lot of them right? still do and over there. As a black person who goes every certain number of weeks to have your hair taken care of, how does that make you feel to see that? I mean, a part of me would rather see the, the tight, contemporary-looking cornrows as opposed to the man's head just looking like a slave. <laughs> this okay. is called Triloquy. Okay. I'm interested. At the same time, I do think there's a conversation about applying contemporary black tropes to this historical black figure, what that means for marketing, what that means for telling uh, a, a certain slant of the story, you know, dramatization or whatever, even though it is based on, you know, a, a, a true person's life. I don't know. It's, but, it's interesting. It's, but, it's something but what, to talk about. From what you said, that hairstyle would have been something that was worn. At the time, right? So then, how how is it uh, appropriation? Well, I just don't know. Well, I didn't say, use the word appropriation. I what don't know that you, you were uh, talking about mo like a modern look, right? Stylization. Go, th there you go. Right. Yeah. I just don't know that he wouldn't 
have uh, been well. I mean, if you look at the picture, the the picture of the Chevalier, the portrait that we have, he's kind of got the gray fro going on, you know. <laughs> does he not? He does. So, so you know, I don't know. I I, I guess my point is that, um, you know, when when you put stories like this on on screen for contemporary audiences, there are contemporary aspects that come in. I don't know. Maybe they'll they'll try to be a, a little cheeky in the film and put in some slang or something from today. I, I don't know what they'll do. I mean, that that'll be even weirder. But yeah. I don't know. That that's what I thought when I saw the 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 corn rolls. Um, but yeah, like I said, well, so uh, am I looking too hard? Am I? Am I? I, am I, think, I, being... I, I think that was. An, I wouldn't have thought to go there, but I think that was an interesting catch on on uh, on your end. Are you gonna see the film? Sure. Are you Are you gonna pay the uh, seventeen dollars plus popcorn and coke? Or are you gonna wait for it to stream? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I'll wait for it to stream. Mm-hmm, me too, because I need to be in a safe space when I see this film because. Living my black experience, you know, again, I'm not trying to disparage anyone. I'm just saying that I have lived enough life (laughs) to imagine as soon as the film ends, someone who I don't know. Oh, isn't it so great to see one of your stories told this way? Or isn't it so great to see your history? And I'm like, oh, well, y'all just leave me alone. You know, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, um, uh, anything else on the Chevalier film? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there are people who have never heard of of this historical figure who will, you know, get to be, be, be on to, to this story. At the same time, I'm just so worried about the respectability politics that are going to go with this. I get that. We'll have to see. I'm cautiously optimistic. By the time the trailer was over, I was like, okay, okay, they're they're firing on a couple different storylines here. This might work out. Yeah, and you know. Oh, see, it's just so weird because I can say, and maybe this will inspire some black parent to put a violin in their kid's hand. But, you know, even that in itself, why are we approximating that to success or or something good? I mean, we would never say the same thing about a black parent putting a basketball in their son's hand, even though the basketball players make more than the violinists, you know, at least Mm -hmm. most of them. So, you know, again, I think there's just levels of respectability politics that we really have to be aware of as we approach films like this, because, excuse me, it'll be very easy. You got got the hiccups there. It'll be very easy for this, I don't know, to, to get problematic that that is that, that this is waiting for that yeah um anyway so um shout out to all of the people who you know got a job doing this film you know shout out to the uh black actors and the um the the music techs i'm sure behind the scenes showing folks how to hold violins and all of this stuff all of the recordings that um are, are going to be showcased in this film so there are folks making money there you know i i definitely acknowledge the good that just comes from this sort of production mm-hmm. i'm wary about the impact but we will see. I'll, I'll keep things positive. So uh, to get us here into the second movement, of course, you know, we have to listen to a little music by the Chevalier. As you've already mentioned to most folks ears, it could be Haydn. It could be Mozart. Um, but, you know, it's it's the Chevalier. I haven't seen a trailer call him the Black Mozart, which I think is one good step. Damn at it. the <laughs> end of the article, it says oh, that they were playing with that. Yeah. You oh, didn't see damn. that down at the see, end? I can't win. I was about to give him some fucking credit. Originally penned as the Black Mozart biopic, 
a controversial nickname attributed to Bologna's musical Prodigy, as well as popular theory that Mozart swiped Chevalier's musical ideas. Well, he probably did. It wouldn't be the first time it happened in history, now would it? Anyway. Oh. <laughs> no, he absolutely did. Here's the um, uh, uh, Biscay's Soweto String Ensemble of Johannesburg. This uh, it, It's an incredible all-black ensemble down in South Africa. They play all sorts of traditional music and uh, some of the Western uh, classical. And of course, you know, this ensemble has dipped into the music of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. So uh, here's their take on his symphony concertante in G major to get us into our second movement. Now that I look at uh, the Chevalier's famous portrait again, that that little that little gray hairdo was likely a wig. So maybe he mm. maybe he did have some cornrows on under the wig. Mm. <laughs> Black people, we we've been getting our hair braided down to put wigs on for hundreds of years, and and and, and we still here fighting for equity. See that hair not saving y'all. <laughs> Those wigs not saving y'all. Now I'm getting problematic. Um, there there is, and let me say this about the music itself. I can certainly appreciate it. I think about the dance sort of minuet qualities of that concert, the excerpt from that concert talk uh, we we just heard uh, an excerpt from. I'm thinking about the ways that you could take repeated phrases and play with the dynamics to uh, create um, uh, antecedents and uh, whatever comes uh, before the antecedent, subsequent and antecedent or whatever the music theory terms are. I'm forgetting my music history. Anyway, because of my training and because of my education, I can find a way to really hear what's happening in this music. But let's just face it, to the untrained ear, and this I'm, I'm not talking down, but to the untrained ear, that's just classical sounding music. And it's great. There's just so much danger there. I, I don't know. It's not that I don't want people to learn about this. I just worry so much at all times about the way we uh, use words like excellence and greatness and success and, and those sorts of things. And it's just so easy to use those words as weapons toward whiteness, toward colonial thinking, toward just something that doesn't um, uh, help people see the black gold that they are, as Esperanza was saying in that song. So, I mean, that that's really my my critique, and I just hope that folks can, you know, understand me. I don't want to. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Maybe that's the perfect segue mm. into the second movement, where we are going to talk about some of the music we've been uh, spending some time with over the past week. So, I mentioned Nina Simone in the opening. I got on to Nina Simone and a track called Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood in a really roundabout way. Have you ever heard of a, a band or an ensemble called Santa Esmeralda? I don't I don't know that group or didn't know that group. By Did the you? name, no. Yeah. So um they are, you know, a, a play a 
famous part in the soundtrack to uh, one of my favorite movies. It it uh, shares my number one spot with The Matrix. It's Kill Bill. So when uh, Beatrix, you know, for folks who know the film, well, when Uma Thurman's, char- uh, Uma Thurman's character uh, goes to Japan to kill Lucy Liu's uh, character, Cottonmouth, or in Ishii, at the final battle, you have a track um, called Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood as performed by Santa Esmeralda. Here's a little bit of that just to, you know, remind people. So you probably haven't seen Kill Bill as many times as I have. But do, but, but do you remember this from the Of course. The mo- yeah, it's, it's just a, a very powerful moment. Anyway, so, you know, wa- watching this film, it just happened to be on TV it, because it's one of my faves. If I'm scrolling the channels and it's on, now that's what's on in the background as I'm working or folding laundry or whatever. Anyway, how often does that how often do you just stumble across Kill Bill? Not very often, which is another reason I'm like, okay, well, it's on. That must mean I need to watch it anyway. So we get to that moment uh, in the film and I'm into it because it's one of my faves. And um, after I'm done with the movie, I go back and just go and listen to all of the tracks on the soundtrack. That's just one of the things I do with my favorite films. So when I uh, get back to that track in particular, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, I remember that there's a version of it that I love even better, which is Nina Simone's version. So it's what I've been spending some time with this is her more gentle take on it we'll listen to a little bit of it here baby you understand me now if sometimes you see that i'm mad don't you know no one alive can always be an angel when everything goes wrong you see some bad the soul whose intentions are good oh lord please don't let me be misunderstood oh my gosh it's so good mm. it's like you can't help but the shimmy or just feel what what she's talking about in that song and i think it really just shines a a different light on the lyrics and the general message of the tune to hear it more and that, you know, uh, jazz, sort so of that softer blues sort of aesthetic. I don't even know the the uh, perfect word to, to use to describe it. But, you know, when you hear those uh, lyrics, you know, don't let me be misunderstood, you know, do, does anything come to mind for you? How, how, how does that song bounce off of your, your spirit or, or your, your emotions? How I remember it? Yeah. That was one of the songs that was on the radio. <laughs> Um, oh not, really? Well, not Nina Simone's version, but the you know the the first yeah. band that I can't remember their name. Santa Esmeralda, yeah. Right. And even back then, I didn't know. But it, but you know that hook, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's and it's shown up all over the place. But uh, 
growing up with it, you know, that was my parents' music. I that mm. wasn't that wasn't the track that I was waiting on. So now, you know, and with your your grown upness, baby, you understand me now. Sometimes I seem a little mad. I didn't have the tools they're, they're, to grasp it. But then. now I'm saying now. Sure. Well, what 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 does that bring up for you, if 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 anything? I I, I have a better understanding of what this person is pining for. That's for sure. 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 <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess for me, I just think about you know. Dialogue, we talk a lot about dialogue being at the center of progress and collaboration and these sorts of things. And I've, you know, really been working hard this year to lead more with compassion and to uh, make sure that I'm responsible not for how people react to what I say, but what I say and what the reaction to that can be. I still feel like when it comes to a lot of things, maybe even the Chevalier film we just got done talking about. I have to work harder to make sure that I'm not being misunderstood, that the goal is always good. The goal is always unity, is not to be divisive, even though sometimes it can feel like that. I'm, I'm thinking about when we were uh, some months ago talking about the brother over in Baltimore. And, you know, sp speaking of things colonial and de <laughs> de decolonized, it's not about picking fun at somebody or 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 being messy. It's about helping people see the bigger picture. So anyway, in watching Kill Bill and uh, revisiting the Santa Esmeralda uh, version of it and then going back to the Nina Simone version, it's had me thinking about that. In what ways can I engage people, engage dialogue, and make sure that I'm actually being understood and not you know, being made to say something that's to the left or divisive or, or whatever? Oh, man. You know? Yeah. But anyway. You know what they say about good intentions? The road to hell is paved with them. Yep, sure is. Just and and what what do we start the opus with? You know, a lot of y'all's faves are down there. You know, as Nina Simone said, go to hell. Mm. So anyway, uh, be sure to go uh, check out both of those. It's all sorts of. Uh, I thought about bringing some music in from the Kill Bill soundtrack because again, I just think it's a brilliant film, a brilliant um, uh, body of uh, musical compositions. But that that's that that's what I, I have this week. That's what really uh, sat on my spirit. So go check out the Santa Esmeralda. Don't let me be misunderstood. And if you want something a little cooler, something for the evening, be sure to check out Nina Simone's version as well. She really did an incredible job with it. That's my um, second ending for this week. What are you bringing for us? On November 18th, just a few days ago, composer Ned Roram passed away. Mm. 99 years and one month wow. old. He almost got to the century mark. Yep. But what do you know about uh, Roram's body of work? Not much. I'm, I'm familiar with the name. I know that his music has more of that uh, so-called contemporary sound to it, but I, my my perspective was that most of that was happening in the 90s, you know, maybe even back hmm. in the 80s. Not a composer, uh, you know, whose big bodies of work were coming out in 2020, but certainly someone on the front edge of right. orchestral music. He wrote hundreds of art songs mm. that was his his main area dude that's not and what I, I knew and i tried to listen to some of them it's just not my bag sure i can't but i did start to explore some you know maybe some of his shorter works might have come across my playlist at work 
uh, a few times. But I started to get into some of his orchestral pieces. And, you know, you were talking about the piece that I brought in last year, A Different Soldier, and last year, last opus, uh, A Different Soldier's Tale. You, you described it as very angular. Mm-hmm. In a good way. That and wasn't I, a read. Oh, no, no, no. And, and I found uh, some of his music that I think could fall under the angular heading as well. Mm-hmm. But if you are someone who is interested in getting more familiar with contemporary composers, uh, a piece by uh, Ned Roram called Sunday Morning might be a good place for you to start because there are elements that are very angular, like uh, the way that it opens up in the first movement. The first one is called Green Freedom. I would certainly use the word angular again in a good way to describe that. But there's a a groove that you get into. I think a lot of people just get so caught up by this not sounding like Chevalier de Saint Georges that right. that you know that that distracts them from the other really uh, incredible aspects of this. I, I think this is cool. But Sunday morning is nice because the movements are like two to three minutes long. Right. Okay. So you 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 get so it'll be over soon. Don't a, worry. It's the sample platter. <laughs> right? right. Right. But not only do you have sounds like that in the first movement, if you can move up to the third movement that I was really vibing on around the lake earlier today in different blue and i felt like oh my gosh i'm in a spielberg movie all of a sudden it sounds like the score Doesn't that sound like a movie? Yeah, it's it's very beautiful. And I think, you know, if, if we're talking about uh, different colors, because I, I, that's what I'm gathering from the subtitles of, mm-hmm. of, of these movements. Again, that was in different blue. That first movement, that more angular movement is called green freedom. So if we're talking about different colors and different um, aesthetics, of course, that has to happen sonically as well, uh, aesthetically, when it comes to the music. And I think it's it's really brilliant. I have to give a special shout out uh, to the Atlanta Symphony. You know, this uh, they recorded this uh, back in 1988, according to the spine here, Robert Shaw um, as the conductor. There are orchestras today in 2022 that are still pouring thousands of dollars into yet another Mahler recording 
or yet another Beethoven recording. And you have um, folks like the Atlanta Symphony who have been dedicated to uh, new music for over 30 years now. You know, um, uh, with my job with ACO, we're partnering with them in, uh, I believe, in May, you know, for some uh, new music reading. So I'm, I, I celebrate, you know, not only the schools and the radio stations that uh, uh, platform and make room for new music, but even the orchestras and especially the orchestras who've been doing it uh, for, a, for a long time now, because it's not just any old recording, it's a, a great quality recording, mm-hmm. and it really gives you a clear image, a clear view of, of Ned Roram's music. Incredible, incredible composer. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning artist, and did you know he's also a diarist? Oh, wow. So he had a lot so, of diaries that he left. How would you feel about that? You uh, you die and you've got like half a dozen of your books of your innermost thoughts just sort of on somebody's shelf. Right. For me, that's a beautiful thought. I know that not everyone is comfortable with that, but I think there's just such beautiful intimacy about that. I mean, a piece of music is is that very same thing. Maybe even, you know, being more vulnerable uh, through your your creativity. So, I don't know. I like it, but the face you're making, it looks like you don't want you don't want that. Well, for it's you. one thing if it's done after I'm dead. I mean, what am I going to say then? Yeah. And I guarantee you there isn't going to be anybody in charge of my estate. Yeah. Well, <laughs> with finger flexion I, 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 I don't know. I don't know really what what I have to hide, but I don't know. Let me run for office or something. They'll, oh, they'll, they'll find, they'll find it. something. They'll find it. <laughs> anyway, rest in power to Ned Roram. And um, thank you for leaving us uh, such incredible music to uh, remember you by and to uh, continue to make a case for new aesthetics um, in, in orchestral music and Western classical music. Really, really beautiful stuff here. Well, we're getting into the third movement. Uh, and this week's guests are Delta David Geyer, music director of the South Dakota Symphony, and Brian Akipa, who is an indigenous um, flute player uh, uh, from from the area. I'll, I'll be honest. I'll pull back the curtain for a minute. I did not originally plan to share this this week because sometimes it can feel a little obvious, a little overt, a little trite to try to feature indigenous music and indigenous conversations the same week as this holiday that we call Thanksgiving. But I decided to do it anyway because we have to have the conversation. And while it's on people's mind, while the subject is fresh, I just feel like it's important to to, to go there. So over the past few years, the South Dakota Symphony has been uh, undertaking something called the Lakota Music Project, uh, conversations, collaborations that really tie uh, what the orchestra is doing with uh, the indigenous people, the communities, and their music of the area. And uh, recently, just this year, um, uh, a recording, a commercial recording of some of the collaborations has uh, come out. So it's you mm. know huge news for the South Dakota Symphony, yeah. huge news for um, uh, for folks interested in learning more about uh, uh, indigenous musicking and uh, different aesthetics. And I would even say, you know, outside of that colonial view of success and excellence, even a big deal for um, indigenous musicians to have the opportunity yeah. to be a part in that community building and that uh, bridge building. So it was just such an honor. 
uh, to to be able to engage them in conversation. You know, when I think specifically about uh, Brian Akipa and and his uh, contribution to this uh, conversation, I just I find myself I don't I don't ever find myself starstruck or or anything like that. But when I engage Indigenous people, there is just a reverence that yeah. I can't help but to feel. And I'm, you know, the, again, like I said, the honor is all mine to be able to have engaged this conversation. So we talk about the Lakota Music Project, some of the things that has inspired it, um, some of the impact, and, and what are the uh, hoped for continued impact of a project like this? Uh, so uh, to get us into the conversation, I wanted to share just a little bit here of, of the uh, conclusion of one of the tracks on this new uh, Lakota Music Project album is called Black Hills Olawan. It features indigenous music some singing along with the sounds of the South Dakota Symphony. Incredible music here uh, to get us into my conversation with Maestro Delta David Geyer and Brian Akipa. Hope you all enjoy. Something like symphony music or even flute music would be really new to everyone, especially the like the non-tribal members. They probably never, even though they live here on the reservation, they never heard native music, and they probably don't listen to symphony music either. And as for natives, like the tribal school, they don't have a music program through the whole K through 12. And so their experience with music, uh, it needs some work. It needs to do, do something more than what they have. So <clears throat> trying to reach an audience like that is... I don't know if you can just target someone and advertise it like that or something, but the very first performance with the symphony and myself was in the Sistine High School. And that was almost a full, complete crowd in that auditorium. And that really surprised me. And that might have been one of the only events that had that many people come to it. So something maybe was new or maybe they got their interest or something they they came out that night. How do, I wonder how you first started to learn music. You you speak to there not being music programs in the schools. How did how did it happen for you? I made my own flute <clears throat> and I still make flutes today. And I was in a studio, painting studio of Oscar Howe, and I was studying painting under him. And he had a flute in his desk. So I asked to look at it, and I studied it. And the more, and I drew it and sketched it and measured it, the more I spent time with it, it looked like I could make one. So that's what I did. 
I made my first flute. And just, it was really awesome hearing that first sound that it made. It took me a long time, seemed like, but finally I could play it. And of course, I wasn't much, I didn't know what to play, I didn't know how to play. I was just making notes. And my aunt told me, she said, you should go talk to your grandmother's cousins because they made and played flutes when they were younger. And that's uh, David Marks and Norman Blue. So that's how I learned to, to play from them, from the elders. And back then, that's the only way you could learn it. And because there just wasn't very much of it around. And of course, David, that's very different than the stories of most orchestral musicians. I wonder, um, what were your initial approaches to this project, considering how different the foundations of the collaborators are? Yeah, well, that was the that was the whole whole learning process. So we we actually spent four years developing relationships with tribal elders and cultural leaders across the state before we played a single note in the Lakota Music Project. Um, because I, I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, we, you know, and you can go in with all the good intentions in the world and, you know, really screw things up if sure. you're not careful. I'd seen plenty of examples of that. So, um, but I was really fortunate to have some some partners, uh, one man, Barry LeBeau, who worked for United Sioux Tribes, uh, who served as my ambassador, my liaison to uh, to different tribal elders. And, you know, over the first couple of years, we're going back to 2005 now, um, you know, we would take trips around the state and, uh, and he would introduce me to people. And, uh, and it was during that period that that even the concept of what a Lakota music project would be started to take shape. And uh, from that, then when the musicians started getting involved, um, then we were able to, to because, because the whole approach was to like, how do we, what's the most meaningful thing we can do uh, to, to, for both sides of this equation? We have this racial tension thing in South Dakota. So, so, Rather than addressing it the way politicians and everybody else is trying to do it, how do we do something meaningful for everyone where we can come away having understood each other better through the sharing of music together? And so that's that's kind of how we approached it. And we've you know we got to say still you know every Lakota Music Project performance or uh, new project that we do is simply uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. you know? And you know, like Jeffrey Paul, one of the composers on the on the uh, on the uh, recording, he's our principal oboist. He, he says, you know, I work really hard to make sure that everybody's equally uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so, so we're we're all outside of our comfort zone, and we're all exploring together. And it's it's created this really beautiful openness and and uh, this attitude of of you know patience with each other and not trying to squeeze either side into a, a prefigured box. Mm -hmm. Wow. Brian, I imagine that this uh, project was your first time working with orchestras, or maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's my very first time. 
And how I got involved was they have the Lakota Music Project has a composition academy, and they had it here, and I had a chance to participate. And I've never done that either. I never wrote music. And so it was really kind of a good long learning curve for me. And I wrote a song for uh, based on a metal arc. And also I wrote, kind of wrote some parts for a woodwind quintet. So that's how I got involved. And that was my first experience. Were you immediately interested in the collaboration? Were you a little wary? I wonder what your initial reactions were to the invitation. Oh, yeah. I was really, really happy and excited to do that. And not only did I have a song that I've been wanting to work on for a really long time, but really professional musicians, and they're good to work with and easy to work with. And they could kind of lower down to where I was at and and make it easier for me, too. And I almost wouldn't say lower down. I mean, David, maybe you you would agree. Not at all. No, I mean, really, like, equally uncomfortable. (laughs) So, so, Brian, we should tell Garrett about our initial meeting, actually, because that's really fascinating. Um, One of the many, I mean, I was assistant with New York Phil for many years, but but one of my strange offshoots that I did, I worked with a group called the Brooklyn Jazz Composers Orchestra. Hmm. And uh, one of the composers that, that initiated that program was called, his name Jeffrey Raheb. And um, he had a tune that that uh, that we did that we actually recorded called Akita Mani Yo. And I didn't really think much about it. Um, and, uh, you know, he told me that it was based on a Native American tune and he'd found it in the Library of Congress. You know, it was based on a book that he read that really inspired him. But it wasn't until I got the gig in South Dakota that Jeff told me, man, you know that 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 book, that, that tune, that's Lakota. I said, what? You're kidding me. <laughs> and so uh, he actually arranged it for our for our orchestra. And so we were actually playing a chamber orchestra version of this jazz tune in, uh, in Sisseton. And uh, we went to Brian, first time Brian and I met, we went to Brian, or the, actually the, the head of the Arts Council went to Brian and said, hey, you know, uh, would you come play this tune and talk about the origins of this tune? And so he did before we played the other things. So, I mean, that was like a little prototypical Lakota Music Project, you know, in in the spring of 2005, something like that. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. Was the was the plan to David, this is for you. Was the plan to always integrate these collaborations into concerts that included Rachmaninoff and Berlioz? Was the idea to keep it separate? How, how are you thinking about this programmatically over the course of the collaboration? Uh, you know, we've done a lot of contemporary music since I've been here, and that what you just suggested has been my my approach all along in terms of contemporary music. Because you know, let's face it, eighteen years ago, most orchestras weren't playing much contemporary music. We're doing better with it now, um, but but Lakota Music Project was always designed not to be played in the concert hall, um, to be a, a, an exploration of the music's 
of our of our of our two cultures and and then integrating it and it was always designed to be free and open to the public and you know to be played on gymnasium floors on reservations and community centers and crazy horse uh, monument and the places like that which is we've got uh, probably over 50 iterations of this project um, that we've done over the last uh, 13 years. And um, just last October, a year ago, um, was the first time we brought it into the concert hall. And it was part of our 100th anniversary celebration as an orchestra, but also facilitated us to be able to make the recording. Brian, I wonder if you think it's important or what's the significance of performing this music in more places than just the concert hall. Is that something that's significant or something that you think is important? Well, I think it always makes it more intimate with the audience because rather than having everybody up on stage, you're, you're all there and they can come closer together and see the musicians better, see the instruments better, and you're close to the music. So that really makes a big difference in the way they're experiencing it. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that intimacy. What is it uh, that you're hoping, always hoping to cultivate between performer and audience, specifically as it relates to that intimate nature? Well, even for me, because I've never experienced much of that. You know, formal orchestra music in symphony and in a, or even in a stage, but it's always on TV. So it seems like at a distance, or maybe if I have attended a concert, they're up on stage and how many a long ways away. So when I was actually able to sit with them in the orchestra, right close to right next to you, the sound and everything is is different from being pushed back from it. And seeing all the musicians and seeing their concentration and their feeling for the music and the way their movements and how they're playing their instruments, uh, it all makes you part of it or draws you in more to it. So, David, how has this impacted your thoughts or approach to the so-called uh, traditional concert experience? Is it time to put all of these concerts on gym floors and in spaces where the intimacy can can be a little bit more real? Maybe some. You know, we, <laughs> we just had our symphony gala a couple of weeks ago, and I was sitting at a table with a, a former board member who who was talking about the uh, the Van Gogh exhibit. The, the interactive one. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and he said, man, it'd just be really great if we had something like that with the symphony, you know, I said, like, like a symphony garden. <laughs> he said, he said, yeah, you know, like, you know, we were sitting there, you know, in the midst, midst of this gala and, and, you know, imagine, cause it was on the concert stage, the gala was. And so we're sitting there imagining spreading the orchestra out, creating paths through the orchestra that, so that people could, you know, experience the music, you know, in, in an immersion kind of way. I mean, we've had, we've had, you know, times when we've had, I guess, mostly board members, 
you know, invited to a rehearsal where they're invited to sit inside the orchestra mm-hmm. and experience it that way and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's a very long answer to your question, but I think, I think, um, exploring these kinds of, of things is, is, uh, is really wonderful. But at the same time, as you well know, there's something to be said for wonderful music played in a really great concert hall with wonderful acoustics. So, so can we have both, please? Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> a, a both and sort of approach. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, you know, I'm I'm from the South, up from Tennessee, and we aren't really taught about the prominence of Indigenous people and Indigenous culture in the South Dakota region. And then, of course, moreover, you know, I'm I've I've always been completely unaware of tensions that exist in in those areas. I wonder what your perspective on, uh, is on the sort of tension between indigenous communities and other communities in South Dakota? I think it's uh, generational. It's happened over a long period of time. And, and there's even something they call generational trauma on how trauma is passed down from one generation to the next. And I think <clears throat> some of them, because it seems like a long time ago, but it's not really long that long because my grandparents and it was a totally different uh, place here back then. Uh, and because I remember my grandmother's place, it didn't have running water. And so I would spend the summers there, we'd have to haul water. Uh, we milk cows. Uh, we did have a TV, there was, but it was uh, black and white. And it was an outdoor latrine or outdoor outhouse. So, and then we milked cows and did chores. And so, what you're thinking about is like the way it is today, but just not that long ago. It was completely different. Mm. And then you go back another generation, and it was a lot different then because my great grandparents. They were in a death camp at Force Snelling, Minnesota, which is downtown Minneapolis. And, and so they went through that. And so they carried that for generation to generation. And then you have white people moving in to the reservation. And at first, what I heard is they were really desperate, kind of lost uh, people. They didn't have nothing. They just came here. And in 1892, the Dakota people really helped them a lot. And whatever happened after that, from next generation, I think it's mostly the land ownership. And Mm. some of those type of things really started separating the people. And so there is a, a big difference between the tribe here and uh, the town. And considering, Brian, that generational trauma that you're speaking to, it seems as if a collaboration with a Western classical orchestra would be completely out of the question. We definitely should not do that. Did the generational 
trauma um, reality or the thought of it play a part in you know your decision to collaborate with the South Dakota Symphony? I think this is <clears throat> it's even healing for people to see that and experience that and to understand what how you know what's happening with this music. And so we said we always talk about bridging cultures and that's kind of what it's doing. David, I'm sure that there have been a lot of internal conversations with the South Dakota Symphony as far as how to most equitably and sensitively engage the collaboration based, if only on what we're talking about, this generational trauma. I wonder what your learnings or evolutions have been um, considering that part of the conversation over the course of this project. Mm, it's been my school, actually. Um, you know, because we went into it, actually, it, it had its genesis in a conversation right very soon after I became music director here, like within a couple of months. Um, you know, you new music director, you're sort of taking, a, taking, taking the pulse of what the orchestra's been doing in terms of, uh, you know, off the stage, education, community engagement, that sort of thing. And there wasn't a lot going on. I found myself talking with a young African-American woman. At, uh, at at a reception one evening, and she was in charge of the Martin Luther King Day activities. And I suggested, you know, well, maybe we should partner, maybe we should do something together. And she just smiled and shook her head. She said, David, if you really want to address racial tension in South Dakota, it's Native American. And after 20 years of living in New York, my jaw hit the ground. Mm. Um, so that was the beginning. And then, you know, we held a luncheon for Lakota leaders that spring, spring of 2005. And, uh, and I went in and I had all kinds of ideas about collaboration. I was met with total distrust. Mm. What's in it for you? Who's making money? Kevin Costner, Dancing with Wolves. Like I just <laughs> like, you know, and I, I just kept backpedaling. And it was my first lesson in learning to just listen. Just, you know, because I got too many ideas. Like, just listen. And so by the time, you know, that, and then that was where I met this guy, Barry LeBeau. He came up to me afterwards and he says, you know, you're crazy, but I want to try to help you. <laughs> um, so, so he, you know, I learned to listen to tribal elders and, and people like Brian and keepers of the of various drums and cultural leaders and like, you know, and to be able to ask the right questions, you know, how can we create something something meaningful. And so when we first started talking about it, we were talking about it in terms of addressing the racial divide, you know, which is and, and it's more than it's more than being just a racial one, it's a geographical one because we have nine reservations. Mm -hmm. And people don't go, you know, white people don't go on the reservation much, you know, and vice versa. You know, it's so it's it's really kind of difficult to develop relationships and, and get going. But as we progressed and played and we've, you know, you know, people like Brian and Manuel Black Bear, we've been on the road, we've slept in bad hotels, we've eaten bad food, you know, like we've gone all over the place together. And you, you know what? You become friends. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and we stopped talking about it 
as much about addressing racial issues and more about sharing music, sharing what we love together and demonstrating what friendship looks like, you know, in, in a place where these friendships don't na naturally occur. Brian, I wonder if you have had to convince people in your family or your communities to engage this sort of music making, this sort of partnership. I, I would imagine that there might be some skepticism uh, among some of the people that you engage. Yeah, I, in, in some places, like the tribal school doesn't have any music program. And so they don't have any K through 12, no music. And seem like you have to start someplace and get that introduced to them. Because otherwise they just didn't have any, the students wouldn't have any interest in it and just become bored with it and not really understand it. So if you just all of a sudden brought it in, and played it for them. But if you could start with basics and teaching the music and the basics of the music and letting them hear it slowly and then get them interested in it, I think uh, that would help a lot. So David, more on the, um, I'll say, administrative side of things. Did you find that you had to sell this idea uh, to funders and, and other stakeholders? What did that part of this collaboration look like, more of the behind the scenes? Well, well, South Dakota Symphony's changed a lot since those early days as an institution. Um, early on, I was, I was basically doing this by myself. Mm. Um, and there was no funding. Uh, so building this thing was mostly about me traveling around the state with Barry LeBeau and meeting people and, and, uh, and just getting the concept together. A couple of board members cottoned on. Um, and then, you know, once we, once we had a, an idea of what, what this could really look like, um, we, were, we got funding through this one of our board members from Senator Tim Johnson. Um, it was an earmark back before that was a four letter word. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it was $95,000 for the first Lakota music project tour. And, and it, it, it included the commission from Michael Davids and, uh, and so on. So, um, but the institution as a whole, board and staff, still weren't really there you know it was a it was a success that first tour um but people still really didn't know what to do with it you know and a lot of it was being led by our lakota partners the drumming group uh barry lebeau the, the guy from united Sioux tribes you know helping us structure it and following their lead and um and it's, it's still, I mean, honestly, it's still sort of limps from grant to grant to grant. You know, the next tour was the Mellon Foundation. Next tour was Bush Foundation. You know, when we have the money, we do Lakota Music Project. When we don't, 
you know, it's, uh, it's slim pickings. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, that, that's the reality of, of the project to, to date. I would say that we're, we've matured along the way as a total institution, as an orchestra, but also in terms of Lakota music project, there's total ownership of this program. Now board staff, musicians, everybody's in, um, and so that that's not an issue anymore. And you're right. We uh, you mentioned before about equitably looking at how to how to structure these things. We've you know not that we got it all figured out, but we're doing better. You know, and and we're working with people closely and and uh, and and just doing our best to 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 do do the best we can by everybody. So um, yeah, and we're hopeful hopeful for the future. This recording is important for us. Uh, because now, finally, the people who get excited about the idea of Lakota Music Project can actually hear what it sounds like. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask about uh, the recording, Brian. It's one thing to experience the bridging of culture in live performance. Do you think having recordings of of these performances has the same impact? I I think so because just. <clears throat> experience it in live sitting with the orchestra i noticed that the recording and the way it's mastered the it's really evened out and controlled and you can hear all the different parts um, i think on amazing grace i could hear the drums so much the singing so much clearer a lot of times you just hear the, the drum and the rhythm but you could hear the really singing really and that really added to to the performance and so that's the experience people would get it be more clear and david one of the other benefits that i imagine you think about is uh going back to the conversation of geography south dakota isn't you know new york or los angeles or these big metropolitan areas it seems like uh, another huge benefit with just getting uh, in front of more audience, getting through more ears, considering the, I hate to say, use the word isolation, but the relative isolation of, you know, the communities in South Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope. I mean, I'm hoping, Brian, I don't know if you've heard it or anything about it yet, but I'm hoping that, that on the, the Indian news network, the, the radio stations, maybe this can get some, some play. You know, so, so people can become more familiar with Lakota Music Project that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to uh, save my last question for uh, Brian, but so I'll, I'll ask you two uh, quick ones, David. First, um, how can people learn more about uh, this project? How can they check out the recording and uh, keep up with what the next steps are? So you can visit our website, sdsymphony.org, and go under community programs and you'll there's a whole history of Lakota music project and uh, you know and there's there's information there also about the recording but and it's, it's available on all the streaming services right now through Amazon you know just like you'd buy any other recording Innova's done a great job uh, the Innova recording label label of getting it out there distributing it so it's widely available and speaking of those next steps David I wonder what you think of uh, when you think about the continued work, this project has had a, a great impact. It also hasn't erased tensions, you know, that that exists. What do you see as the 
continued work? Well, new new programs um, created actually just yesterday. I was having a conversation about uh, the creation of new music for this for this project, the incorporation of uh, of more um, Lakota Dakota artists, not just musicians, dancers, and uh, and some visual arts and this sort of thing. We talked about storytelling um, and how that can be helpful in terms of of uh, addressing the history of race in South Dakota uh, by telling the story. Um, so, um, so we, you know, it's, it's commissioning new work, getting that, you know, hitting the road again, getting it out there, performing it, probably recording new work as well. Thank you. Thank you for that. Brian, where I wanted to wrap up, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, we can look specifically at uh, bridging communities and crossing cultures, specifically in South Dakota. But when I think about the country as a whole, I think about the many different types of generational traumas and the many different types of communities that don't exactly get along. You know, of course, there's uh, the struggle of uh, Afro-Americans, Black Americans. We're talking about anti-Semitism a lot these days. There are just so many areas in which community building needs to happen. Uh, From your perspective, I wonder what you think the broader world, the broader nation can learn from really considering uh, what has happened in South Dakota between Lakota communities and the South Dakota Symphony? Is there learning that can apply more broadly? Well, I hope it's getting out there. I, I think it's getting different places and some of the feedback that I get from people. But <clears throat> I think just the awareness that it brings and saying this is what's happening and this this is it. And they see the music and the musicians and they hear the music and it makes a difference in the way they understand it. It's called Wind on Clear Lake. Uh, Brian Akipa is featured in that recording uh, with the South Dakota Symphony under the direction of Maestro Delta David Geyer. Scott, something that just breaks my heart to actually consider and think about when it comes to, you know, one of the reasons for this project, and it's even um, cited in, in program notes that you'll read about it, you know, the desire to... Uh, ease and do something about racial tensions Mm -hmm. in South Dakota. I I gave a speech over uh, in uh, Brookings, South Dakota, I don't know, maybe about a year ago or earlier this year. And that was 
very obvious to me just in the hotel looking at the news when i'm out of town and you're in a hotel i just kind of find myself cutting on the news on on the tv as i'm getting dressed or whatever just seeing what's going on and i didn't have the local news on in south dakota for 15 minutes before i'm reading about some racial nonsense between white people and indigenous folks you know it's it's like how dare you how 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 dare somebody actually have the nerve to be racist or try to subjugate not only the idea of indigenous people, indigenous history, but actual indigenous people who are still here. I like and really appreciate that the South Dakota Symphony has done this uh, in an effort, you know, for, for among the many reasons to deal with those racial tensions. But I hate the fact that those racial tensions even exist. Maybe I'm just so, <laughs> I, I laugh to keep from crying. Maybe I'm just so used to the, the anti-black racism. It's, it's uh, hard to even fathom somebody trying to subjugate or be racist to somebody whose land this actually is historically. It's ridiculous. I, I can't even imagine it being a thing. You're from Omaha, mm -hmm. Nebraska. You know, are there uh, indigenous communities there enough for that type of racism to to peek its head. Have you experienced that? Uh, I haven't experienced it. And if uh, if I did, it wasn't prevalent enough to make me remember now. Right. But there are reservations. And right. there, of course, are casinos mm -hmm. that reservations run. But um, as far as overt racism, I, I don't recall it. So imagine it being so overt that now even the orchestras have to get involved. You see, the orchestras don't get involved in a lot of stuff that <laughs> that people would would consider political, but the issue there is so huge that the orchestra is like, okay, now we have to do something. Mm. So, you know, I again, I I celebrate the music, I mourn the one of the reasons for the need for the music, you know, the community building, the 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 bridge building. So, you know, Huge thanks once again to Brian Akipa and Delta David Geyer for joining me to just showcase a little bit of what's happening over there in South Dakota. I'm going to be over there live in person uh, in, in April for work, so I'm looking forward to uh, having my feet on the ground and, and actually uh, meeting uh, some people in real life. But I just... I shake my head. It's hard for me to fathom a person having the fucking gall to, to, to act that way toward indigenous people. Uh, and, 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 and now this is me needing to test my patience or something mm. so that I don't have hate and frustration to, to, toward those people. But anyway, huge conversation that I think, you know, we need to continue to um, engage just as the South Dakota symphony has um, engaged it. So we're going to get into the fourth movement here. We're going to, you know, continue this conversation just a little bit. We're not going to be here all night, but um, I, I do want to start with celebration. We're going to talk a little bit about programming and how we can address this holiday in a way that's more truthful and more accurate than we once uh, were taught about it um, in the past. So we're going to get into the uh, fourth movement with a piece of music that I used to like to program uh, around uh, this time of year to just get folks in the spirit, you know, uh, as, as much as we can critique and, and talk about the the uh, the history, the incorrect history that we're all taught around this so-called Thanksgiving holiday. There is the 
culture of friendship and family and comfort and and all of those sorts of things that come with it. And this track by uh, Mark O'Connor has always, at least for me, um, inspired thoughts of that not so negative aspect of this holiday. So this is the uh, tail end of a track of his called Johnny's Apple Pie. It's a movement from the Johnny Appleseed Suite to get us into the fourth movement this week. that one the the johnny appleseed suite yeah it doesn't come across much but yeah i know it mm-hmm. the the how, talk about the aesthetic that you pull from that maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be squarely thanksgiving music but when you hear that music what are some of the images or, or stories that you could just spin at the uh you know at, at, from the top of your head it pulls on the americana strings yeah you know the um the seat of <laughs> the seat of thanksgiving in 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 america yeah i think it also can uh be a useful tool to talk about decolonizing classical music how so we uh don't get that aesthetic from england or from or from ireland or, or other places maybe things that are reminiscent of that or or traditions that helped inspire that but i think that you know you use the word americana i think that general aesthetic is one that is very American and and can be used, you know, for people who are a little scared of the phrase decolonizing or decolonization from the racial aspect, you know, that that music is as American as everything else. And I think can count as, you know, an example of a decolonized approach to classical music, that Appalachian Americana, you know, down home sort of sound. I, I think it's it's of use. And one way that I have uh, used the holiday uh, at least in in my past days of of programming, to you know, put a a positive spin on something that's just so ugly. If you really look at the the actual history of it, what are your ideas on what um, orchestras, um, radio, whatever you know, classical presenting organizations, how the Thanksgiving holiday should be approached? Understanding now that many, if not most, if not all of the stories that we were told about Thanksgiving growing up, understanding that all of that is hogwash, what opportunities do we have now when it comes to programming, um, putting people onto musical aesthetics, dialogue, whatever, as classical music presenting individuals and organizations? If you do a hard switchover, you're going to hear a lot of squawking. And if you're like, if you're a, uh, an, an orchestra that has holiday specials, because that's a time when a lot of families will go yeah, to hear your Christmas program or your whatever special. But say more about that. You'll hear a lot of squawking. What do you mean? Well, because people have come to expect a certain thing from orchestras around this time of year mm-hmm. um, or or playhouses, radio stations. Yeah. They're going to expect wall-to-wall Christmas music starting the day after Thanksgiving, right? Right. right. 24-7, nothing but Christmas. I'm I'm getting a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> but so what I'm saying is, is you get people used to that mm-hmm. and then you take it away or you do something different, 
you're going to get squawking. You're going to get blowback. Yeah. You're probably going to lose some money. You're going to lose some listenership. So uh, I do know that uh, as far as Thanksgiving is concerned, I can't really speak to it, but I do know of certain radio stations that are taking steps around the Messiah, that they are prefacing it with a program that talks about Hendel's background and you know what the racial situation must have been in England at the time. But then they go and they do Messiah right. after it. Right. And that's the thing. You know, we, we we lay all of this out, but what is being said in essence is, but none of that really matters to us anyway. Now, so here's, anyway, here's so some here's Messiah. You know, you know, <laughs> and you know, I, I think the conversation around, you know, Christmas music and, and things, that that's one thing. It's not uh, th- there isn't the classical repertoire that's squarely pointed at Thanksgiving as there is, you know, other things. There's a, you know, I, I look back at some of my playlists. There is a a Thanksgiving overture by, you know, some composers and you know stuff that we can approximate to the holiday, like that Johnny Appleseed Suite. I do think it's important to highlight something indigenous. With the opportunity, we should be doing that year round. I think, you know, some of the the challenges that we only really talk about it when we're trying to make the point about the problematic history of Thanksgiving, but it it should be platformed uh, all the time in the same way that you can't relegate uh, black music to Black History Month and uh, compositions by women to march and all that sort of thing. So there's that part of the conversation. I think what I'm getting at is there is an opportunity to specifically address this history and do it through music making in the same way that the South Dakota Symphony did. You know, there are a lot of um, uh, public radio uh, uh, specials, and I don't even know if they're produced by uh, APM or not, but, you know, I'm thinking about ones called Giving Thanks. and, and those, John Burge. The, okay, see, I, I didn't even know. It's, it's, it's such a a regular part of radio listening, you know, for mm-hmm. me that I'm I'm just used to it. So I don't know. I think that there just has to be some acknowledgement. You know, before we cut on the mics, we were talking about uh, that uh, that famous portrait is called Freedom from Want. For people who don't know uh, the the portrait by its title, it's just that very famous, you know, prototypical image of. Uh, mother and father at the head of the table with the turkey and everyone sitting around, you know, this all-white table, of course. But I can't look at images like that the same. I can't hear uh, radio programs or attend concerts themed around Thanksgiving without just the, the knowledge of the insidious nature of what we've been taught and what we've been conditioned to do and think around this holiday. That's not to say that I'm not going to enjoy some time off work, that I'm not going to enjoy some time sharing uh, a meal with uh, friends. You know, we have the Friendsgivings, you know, here in this household, usually on the Tuesday or the uh, Wednesday before so that I can actually relax on on the Thursday holiday. So it's not that I'm completely poo-pooing you know, what the holiday is in a contemporary way. I understand that folks aren't trying to just uh, directly be disrespectful to indigenous people. I'm just saying that we don't, from my perspective, we don't keep the conversation as to the front as we should. Um, So with all of that in mind, (laughs) are you going to say something to your audience on Thursday? Are you going to play it cool? 
and that's not a value judgment. It's just a you know where you are. I am as, in this conversation. I am all about the ideas of thankfulness and gratitude. Yeah. So you bet I'm going to be playing that piece of it up. But the last few years, I've been quoting my sixth grade teacher. Shout out to Gerald Relford, who when he was telling us the story, it didn't always line up with the book. He said, "Put your books away, kids." So no, we no. He's following along with the book, you know, and you know, and he would say something about how you know the uh, the pilgrims came over and they set up their camps, and and he made and the book made it sound like there was this healthy distance in between the pilgrims and and the indigenous. Uh, um, tribes. Which, of course, then, is not the language he used or anyone used right. back in those days, but go on. Right. And then as he's turning the page, he goes, and then that winter when they ran out of food, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, the pilgrims are running to the Indians going, hey, we're <laughs> we're starving over here. Do you have anything you can spare? So how much do and you think his hands were tied when, when, it, when it comes to telling the not truth? Not near they, as much as they are now. Right. Well, I guess what I'm saying is maybe... He was given those little offhand comments as he turned the page because he knows if he told the story, now he got to go to the principal's office because somebody's mama is upset maybe. Ab- ab- about something. Yeah, so, maybe. you know, I, I recognize the uh, the parameters and the obligations that, that people are under in their jobs, whether it's teaching or presenting around this holiday. I still think we can we can make some 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 steps forward. I mean, and even if we just apply the miseducation more broadly, they really set up there, Scott, and taught us as five and six and seven year olds about the first Thanksgiving and how everything was sweet. And, you know, uh, they lived happily ever after and they survived the winter because of this, that and the other. If they really went to the lengths of printing that in textbooks and teaching us that, what about music? What about other points of history that have just been completely been nonsense in in our in our in our learning and the way that we've continued to uh to 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 move forward um in the way that we think about these holidays and things i i think you know we have to do everything we can to take every opportunity we can to really spread the truth because we've already been the victims of lies and and those sorts of conventions and conditioning i hope that anyone in front of any audience of people around anything themed around Thanksgiving or or any of that can take the opportunity that you can to shine a light on the real history, the real story, and apply that to the way that you use the word Thanksgiving or when you write a note that says Happy Thanksgiving. You know, what what are you actually doing? What are you actually wishing on people? Just consider that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to ruin anyone's day, but I'm also understanding that the the days of millions of people were ruined. The livelihoods, the history of millions of people were wiped out. And that's something that we need to continue to face more head on as we move forward. Um, but that's not going to keep you from coming over here tomorrow and eating some food, right? I'll be over. <laughs> Flowers in hand. All right. Well, happy Turkey Day, everyone. Again, I'm not trying to rain on parades. Please don't let me be misunderstood. But just... Think about the implications of things and better ways for us to move forward. 
honor and praise to indigenous communities across this country and around the world, especially here locally, the uh, living um, and ancestral members of the Anishinaabe communities, the um, the uh, Mdewakanen communities, all of the folks of the broader Eastern Dakota that make up this part of the country where this is being recorded from. Thank you for stewarding the land and thank you for everything that you continue to do that has a positive impact on us. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week.